May Day Eve Chapter 1 It was in the spring when I at last found time from the hospital work to visit my friend, the old folklorist, in his country isolation, and I rather chuckled to myself because in my bag I was taking down a book that utterly refuted all his tiresome pet theories of magic and the powers of the soul. These theories were many and various and had often troubled me, in the first place I scorned them for professional reasons, and in the second because I had never been able to argue quite well enough to convince or shake his faith in even the smallest details, and any scientific knowledge that I brought to bear only fed him with confirmatory data. To find such a book, therefore, and to know that it was safely in my bag, wrapped up in brown paper and addressed to him, was a deep and satisfactory joy and I speculated a good deal during the journey as to how he would deal with the overwhelming arguments it contained against the existence of any important region outside the world of sensory perceptions. Speculative, too, I was, whether his visionary habits and absorbing experiments would permit him to remember my arrival at all, and I was accordingly relieved to hear from the solitary porter that the professor had sent a, quote, vehicle to meet me and that I was thus free to send my bag and walk the four miles to the house across the hills. It was a calm, windless evening, just after sunset, the air warm and scented and delightfully still. The train, already sinking into the distance, carried away with it the noise of crowds and cities and the last suggestions of the stressful life behind me. And from the little station on the moorland, I at once stepped into the world of silent growing things, tinkling sheep bells, shepherds, and wild, desolate places. My path lay diagonally across the turfy hills. It slanted a mile or two to the summit, wandered vaguely another two miles among gorse bushes along the crest, passed Tom Bassett's cottage by the pines, and then dropped sharply down on the other side through rather thin woods to the ancient house where the old folklorist lived and dreamed himself into his impossible world of theory and fantasy. I fell to thinking busily about him during the first part of the ascent and convinced myself as usual that, but for his generosity to the poor and his benign aspect, the peasantry must undoubtedly have regarded him as a wizard who speculated in souls and had dark dealings with the world of fairy. The path I knew tolerably well, I had already walked it once before, a winter's day some years ago, and from the cottage onward felt sure of my way. But for the first mile or so there were so many cross cattle tracks, and the light had become so dim that I felt it wise to inquire more particularly. And this I was fortunately able to do of a man who with astonishing suddenness rose up from the grass where he had been lying behind a clump of bushes, and passed a few yards in front of me at a high pace downhill toward the darkening valley. He was in such a state of hurry that I called out loudly to him, fearing to be too late, but on hearing my voice he turned sharply and seemed to arrive almost at once beside me. In a single instant he was standing there, quite close, looking with a smile and a certain expression of curiosity, I thought, into my face. I remember thinking that his features, pale and wholly untanned, were rather wonderful for a countryman, and that his eyes were those of a foreigner. His great swiftness, too, gave me a distinct sensation, something almost of a start, though I know my vision was at fault at the best of times, and of course especially so in the deceptive twilight of the open hillside. Moreover, as the way often is with such instructions, the words did not stay in my mind very clearly after he had uttered them. 
and the rapid panther-like movements of the man as he quickly vanished down the hill again left me with little more than a sweeping gesture indicating the line I was to follow. No doubt his sudden rising from behind the gorse bush, his curious swiftness, and the way he peered into my face and even touched me on the shoulder all combined to distract my attention somewhat from the actual words he used, and the fact that I was traveling at a wrong angle and should have come out a mile too far to the right helped to complete my feeling that his gesture, pointing the way, was sufficient. On the crest of the ridge, panting a little with the unwanted exertion, I lay down to rest a moment on the grass beside a flaming yellow gorse bush. There was still a good hour before I should be looked for at the house. The grass was very soft and the peace and silence soothing. I lingered and lit a cigarette, and it was just then, I think, that my subconscious memory gave back the words, the actual words that the man had spoken and the heavy significance of the personal pronoun as he had emphasized it in his odd foreign voice touched me with a sense of vague amusement. The safest way for you now, he had said, as though I was so obviously a townsman and might be in danger on the lonely hills after dark. And the quick way he had reached my side and then slipped off again like a shadow down the steep slope completed a definite little picture in my mind. Then other thoughts and memories rose up and formed a series of pictures, following each other in rapid succession and forming a chain of reflections undirected by the will and without purpose or meaning. I fell, that is, into a pleasant reverie. Below me, and infinitely far away, it seemed, the valley lay silent under a veil of blue evening haze, the lower end losing itself among darkening hills whose peaks rose here and there like giant plumes that would surely nod their great heads and call to one another once the final shadows were down. The village lay a misty patch in which lights already twinkled. A sound of rooks faintly cawing, of seagulls crying far up in the sky, and of dogs barking at a great distance rose up out of the general murmur of evening voices. Odors of farm and field and open spaces stole to my nostrils, and everything contributed to the feeling that I lay on the top of the world, nothing between me and the stars, and that all the huge free things of the earth, hills, valleys, woods, and sloping fields, lay breathing deeply about me. A few seagulls, in daytime hereabouts they fill the air, still circled and wheeled within range of sight, uttering from time to time sharp, petulant cries. In far in the distance there was just visible a shadowy line that showed where the sea lay. Then, as I lay gazing dreamily into this still pool of shadows at my feet, something rose up, something sheet-like, vast, imponderable, off the whole surface of the mapped-out country, moved with incredible swiftness down the valley, and in a single instant climbed the hill where I lay and swept by me, yet without hurry, and in a sense without speed. Veils in this way rose one after another, filling the cups between the hills, shrouding alike fields, village, and hillside as they passed, and settled down somewhere in the gloom behind me over the ridge, or slipped off like vapor into the sky. Whether it was actually mist rising from the surface of the fast cooling ground, or merely the earth giving up her heat to the night, I could not determine. The coming of the darkness is ever a series of mysteries. I only know that this indescribable vast stirring of the landscape seemed to me as though the earth were unfolding immense sable wings from her sides and lifting them for silent gigantic strokes, so that she might fly more swiftly from the sun into the night. The darkness at any rate did drop down over everything very soon afterward, and I rose up hastily to follow my pathway, 
realizing with a degree of wonder strangely new to me the magic of twilight, the blue open depths into the valley below, and the pale yellow heights of the watery sky above. I walked rapidly, a sense of chilliness about me, and soon lost sight of the valley altogether as I got upon the ridge proper of these lonely and desolate hills. It could not have been more than fifteen minutes that I lay there in reverie, yet the weather I at once noticed had changed very abruptly, for mist was seething here and there about me, rising somewhere from smaller valleys in the hills beyond and obscuring my path while overhead there was plainly a sound of wind tearing past, far up with a sound of high shouting. A moment before it had been the stillness of a warm spring night, yet now everything had changed. A wet mist coated me, raindrops smartly stung my face, and a gusty wind descending out of cool heights began to strike and buffet me, so that I buttoned my coat and pressed my hat more firmly upon my head. The change was really this, and it came to me for the first time in my life, with the power of a real conviction, that everything about me seemed to have become suddenly alive. It came oddly upon me, prosaic, matter-of-fact, materialistic doctor that I was, this realization that the world about me had somehow stirred into life. Oddly, I say, because nature to me had always been merely a more or less definite arrangement of measurement, weight, and color, and this new presentation of it was utterly foreign to my temperament. A valley to me was always a valley, a hill merely a hill, a field so many acres of flat surface, grass or plowed, drained well or drained ill, whereas now, with startling vividness, came the strange, haunting idea that, after all, they could be something more than a valley, hill, and field, that what I had hitherto perceived by these names were only the veils of something that lay concealed within, something alive, in a word that the poetic sense I had always rather sneered at in others or explained away with some shallow physiological label had apparently suddenly opened up in myself without any obvious cause. And the more I puzzled over it, the more I began to realize that its genesis dated from those few minutes of reverie lying under the gorse bush. Reverie, a thing I had never before in all my life indulged in. Or, now that I came to reflect more accurately, from my brief interview with that wild-eyed, swift-moving, shadowy man of whom I had first inquired the way, I recalled my singular fancy that veils were lifting off the surface of the hills and fields, and a tremor of excitement accompanied the memory. Such a thing had never before been possible to my practical intelligence, and it made me feel suspicious, suspicious about myself. I stood still a moment looked about me into the gathering mist, above me to the vanishing stars, below me to the hidden valley, and then sent an urgent summons to my individuality as I had always known it to arrest and chase these undesirable fancies. But I called in vain. No answer came. Anxiously, hurriedly, confusedly, too, I searched for my normal self but could not find it, and this failure to respond induced in me a sense of uneasiness that touched very nearly upon the borders of alarm. I pushed on, faster and faster along the turfy track among the gorse bushes with a dread that I might lose the way altogether and with a sudden desire to reach home as soon as might be. Then, without warning, I emerged unexpectedly into clear air again, and the vapor swept past me in a rushing wall and rose into the sky. I knew I saw the lights of the village behind me in the depths, here and there a line of smoke rising against the pale yellow sky and stars overhead peering down through thin wispy clouds that stretched their wind signs across the night. 
After all, it had been nothing but a stray bit of sea fog driving up from the coast, for the other side of the hills, I remember, dipped their chalk cliffs straight into the sea, and strange lost winds must often come a-wandering this way with the sharp changes of temperature about sunset. Nonetheless, it was disconcerting to know that mist and storm lay hiding with impossible reach, and I walked on smartly for a sight of Tom Bassett's cottage in the lights of the manor house in the valley a short mile beyond. The clearing of the air, however, lasted but a very brief while, and vapor was soon rising about me as before, hiding the path and making bushes and stone walls look like running shadows. It came, driven apparently by little independent winds up the many side gullies, and it was very cold, touching my skin like a wet sheet. Curious great shapes, too, it assumed, as the wind worked to and fro through it. Forms of men and animals, grotesque, giant outlines, ever shifting and running along the ground with silent feet, or leaping into the air with sharp cries as the gusts twisted them inwardly and lent them voice. More and more I pushed my pace, and more and more darkness and vapor obliterated the landscape. The going was not otherwise difficult, and here and there cowslips glimmered in patches of dancing yellow while the springy turf made it easy to keep up speed. Yet in the gloom I frequently tripped and plunged into prickly gorse near the ground, so that from shin to knee was soon a tingle with sharp pain. Odd puffs and spits of rain stung my face, and the periods of utter silence were always followed by little shouting gusts of wind, each time from a new direction. Troubled is perhaps too strong a word, but flustered I certainly was, and though I recognized that it was due to my being in an environment so remote from the town life I was accustomed to, I found it impossible to stifle altogether the feeling of malaise that had crept into my heart and I looked about with increasing eagerness for the lighted windows of Bassett's cottage. More and more little pinpricks of distress and confusion accumulated, adding to my realization of being away from streets and shop windows and things that I could classify and deal with. The mist, too, distorted as well as concealed and played tricks with sounds as well as with sights. And once or twice, when I stumbled upon some crouching sheep, they got up without the customary alarm and hurry of sheep and moved off slowly into the darkness, but in such a singular way that I could almost have sworn they were not sheep at all, but human beings crawling on all fours, looking back and grimacing at me over their shoulders as they went. On these occasions, for there were more than one, I never could get close enough to feel their woolly wet backs as I should have liked to do, and the sound of their tinkling bells came faintly through the mist, sometimes from one direction, sometimes from another sometimes all around me as though a whole flock surrounded me, and I found it impossible to analyze or explain the idea I received that they were not sheep bells at all, but something quite different. But mist and darkness and a certain confusion of the senses caused by the excitement of an utterly strange environment can account for a great deal. I pushed on quickly. The conviction that I had strayed from the route grew nevertheless, for occasionally there was a great commotion of seagulls about me as though I had disturbed them in their sleeping places. The air filled with their plaintive cries, and I heard the rushing of multitudinous wings, sometimes very close to my head but always invisible, owing to the mist. And once, above the swishing of the wet wind through the gorse bushes, I was sure that I heard the faint thunder of the sea and the distant crashing of waves rolling up some steep-throated gully in the cliffs. I went cautiously after this and altered my course a little way away from the direction of the sound. 
Yet increasingly all the time it came to me how the cries of the seabirds sounded like laughter, and how the everlasting wind blew and drove about me with a purpose, and how the low bushes persistently took the shape of stooping people moving stealthily past me, and how the mist more and more resembled huge protean figures escorting me across the desolate hills, silently with immense footsteps, for the inanimate world now touched my awakened poetic sense in a manner hitherto unguided, and became fraught with the pregnant messages of a dimly concealed life. I readily understood for the first time how easily a superstitious peasantry might people their world, and how even an educated mind might favor an atmosphere of legend. I stumbled along, looking anxiously for the lights of the cottage. Suddenly, as a shape of writhing mist whirled past, I received so direct a stroke of wind that it was palpably a blow in the face. Something swept by with a shrill cry into the darkness. It was impossible to prevent jumping to one side and raising an arm by way of protection, and I was only just quick enough to catch a glimpse of the seagull as it raced past with suddenly altered flight, beating its powerful wings over my head. Its white body looked enormous in the mist that swallowed it. At the same moment a gust tore my hat from my head and flung the flap of my coat across my eyes. But I was well trained by this time and made a quick dash after the retreating black object, only to find on overtaking it that I held a prickly branch of gorse. The wind combed my hair viciously. Then out of the corner of my eye I saw my hat, still rolling, and grabbed swiftly at it. But just as I closed on it, the real hat passed in front of me, turning over in the wind like a ball and I instantly released my first capture to chase it. Before it was within reach, another one shot between my feet so that I stepped on it. The grass seemed covered with moving hats, yet each one, when I seized it, turned into a piece of wood, or a tiny gorse bush, or a black rabbit hole, till my hands were scored with prickles and running blood. In the darkness, I reflected, all objects looked alike as though by general conspiracy. I straightened up and took a long breath, mopping the blood with my handkerchief. Then something tapped at my feet and looking down, there was the hat within easy reach, and I stooped down and put it on my head again. Of course there were a dozen ways of explaining my confusion and stupidity, and I walked along wondering which to select. My eyesight for one thing. And under such conditions, why seek further? It was nothing, after all, and the dizziness was a momentary effect caused by the effort and stooping. But for all that, I shouted aloud, on the chance that a wandering shepherd might hear me. And of course no answer came, for it was like calling in a padded room, and the mist suffocated my voice and killed its resonance. It was really very discouraging. I was cold and wet and hungry, my legs and clothes torn by gorse, my hands scratched and bleeding, the wind brought water to my eyes by its constant buffeting, and my skin was numb from contact with the chill mist. Fortunately, I had matches, and after some difficulty, by crouching under a wall, I caught a swift glimpse of my watch and saw that it was but little after eight o'clock. Supper, I knew, was at nine, and I was surely over halfway by this time. But here again was another instance of the way everything seemed in a conspiracy against me to appear otherwise than ordinary, for in the gleam of the match my watch-glass showed as the face of a little old grey man, uncommonly like the folklorist himself, peering up at me with an expression of whimsical laughter. My own reflection it could not possibly have been, for I am clean-shaven, and this face looked up at me through a running tangle of grey hair. Yet a second and third match revealed only the white surface with the thin black hands moving across it. 
Chapter 2 And it was at this point, I well remember, that I reached what was for me the true heart of the adventure, the little fragment of real experience I learned from it and took back with me to my doctor's life in London, and that has remained with me ever since, and helped me to a new sympathetic insight into the intricacies of certain curious mental cases I had never before really understood. For it was sufficiently obvious by now that a curious change had been going forward in me for some time, dating so far as I could focus my thoughts sufficiently to analyze, from the moment of my speech with that hurrying man of shadow on the hillside. And the first deliberate manifestation of the change, now that I looked back, was surely the awakening in my prosaic being of the poetic thrill, my sudden amazing appreciation of the world around me as something alive. From that moment the change in me had worked ahead subtly, swiftly. Yet, so natural had been the beginning of it, that although it was a radically new departure from my temperament, I was hardly aware at first of what had actually come about. And it was only now, after so many encounters, that I was forced at length to acknowledge it. It came the more forcibly, too, because my very commonplace ideas of beauty had hitherto been always associated with sunshine and crude effects. Yet here this new revelation leaped to me out of wind and mist and desolation on a lonely hillside, out of night, darkness, and discomfort. New values rushed upon me from all sides. Everything had changed, and the very simplicity with which the new values presented themselves proved to me how profound the change, the readjustment, had been. In such trivial things the evidence had come that I was not aware of it until repetition forced my attention, the veils rising from the valley and hill the mountaintops as personalities that shout or murmur in the darkness, the crying of the seabirds and the living, purposeful wind, above all the feeling that nature about me was instinct with a life differing from my own in degree rather than kind. Everything, from the conspiracy of the gorse bushes to the disappearing hat, showed that a fundamental attitude of mind in me had changed, and changed, too, without my knowledge or consent. Moreover, at the same time, the deep sadness of beauty had entered my heart like a stroke, for all this mystery and loveliness, I realized poignantly, was utterly independent and careless of me as me, that while I must pass, decay, grow old, these manifestations would remain forever young and unalterably potent. And thus gradually had I become permeated with the recognition of a region hitherto unknown to me, and that I had always depreciated in others, and especially, it now occurred to me, in my friend the old folklorist. Here, surely, I thought, was the beginning of conditions which carried a little farther must become pathogenic. That the change was real and pregnant I had no doubt whatever. My consciousness was expanding, and I had caught it in the very act. I had, of course, read much concerning the changes of personality, swift, kaleidoscopic, had come across something of it in my practice, and had listened to the folklorist holding forth like a man inspired upon ways and means of reaching concealed regions of the human consciousness, and opening it to the knowledge of things called magical so that one became free of a larger universe. But it was only now, for the first time, on these bare hills, in touch with the wind and the rain, that I realized in how simple a fashion the frontiers of consciousness could shift this way and that, or with what touch of genuine awe the certainty might come that one stood on the borderland of new, untried, and perhaps dangerous experiences. 
At any rate, it did now come to me that my consciousness had shifted its frontiers very considerably, and that whatever might happen must not seem abnormal, but quite simple and inevitable, and of course, utterly true. This very simplicity, however, doing no violence to my being, brought with it nonetheless a sense of dread and discomfort, and my dim awareness that unknown possibilities were about me in the night puzzled and distressed me perhaps more than I cared to admit. Chapter 3 All this that takes so long to describe became apparent to me in a few seconds. What I had always despised ascended the throne. But with the finding of Bassett's cottage as a signpost close to home, my former sang-froid, my stupidity, would doubtless return, and my relief was therefore considerable when at length a faint gleam of light appeared through the mist, against which the square dark shadow of the chimney-line pointed upward. After all, I had not strayed so very far out of the way. Now I could definitely ascertain where I was wrong. Quickening my pace, I scrambled over a broken stone wall and almost ran across the open bit of grass to the door. One moment the black outline of the cottage was there in front of me, and the next, when I stood actually against it, there was nothing. I laughed to think how utterly I had been deceived, yet not utterly, for as I groped back again over the wall, the cottage loomed up a little to the left with its windows lighted and friendly, and I had only been mistaken in the angle of approach after all. Yet again, as I hurried to the door, the mist drove past and thickened a second time, and the cottage was not where I had seen it. My confusion increased a lot after that. I scrambled about in all directions, rather foolishly hurried, and over countless stone walls, it seemed, and completely dazed as to the true points of the compass. Then suddenly, just when a kind of despair came over me, the cottage stood solidly before my eyes, and I found myself not two feet from the door. Was ever missed before so deceptive? And there, just behind it, I made out the row of pines like a dark wave breaking through the night. I sniffed the wet resinous odor with joy, and a genuine thrill ran through me as I saw the unmistakable yellow light of the windows. At last I was near home, and my troubles would soon be over. A cloud of birds rose with shrill cries off the roof and whirled into the darkness when I knocked with my stick on the door, and human voices I was almost certain mingled somewhere with them, though it was impossible to tell whether they were within the cottage or outside. It all sounded confusedly, with a rush of air like a little whirlwind, and I stood there rather alarmed at the clamor of my knocking. By way, too, of further proof that my imagination had awakened, the significance of that knocking at the door set something vibrating within me that most surely had never vibrated before, so that I suddenly realized with what atmosphere of mystical suggestion is the mere act of knocking surrounded, knocking at a door, both for him who knocks, wondering what shall be revealed on opening, and for him who stands within waiting for the summons of the knocker. I only know that I hesitated a lot before making up my mind to knock a second time. And anyhow, what happened subsequently came in a sort of haze. Words and memories both fail me when I try to record it truthfully, so that even the faces are difficult to visualize again, the words almost impossible to hear. Before I knew it, the door was open, and before I could frame the words of my first brief question, I was within the threshold and the door was shut behind me. I had expected the little dark and narrow hallway of a cottage, oppressive of air and odor, but instead I came straight into a room that was full of light and full of people, and the air tasted like the air about a mountaintop. To the end I never saw what produced the light, 
nor understood how so many men and women found space to move comfortably to and fro and pass each other as they did within the confines of those four walls. An uncomfortable sense of having intruded upon some private gathering was, I think, my first emotion, though how the poverty-stricken countryside could have produced such an assemblage puzzled me beyond belief. And my second emotion, if there was any division at all in the wave of wonder that fairly drenched me, was feeling a sort of glory in the presence of such an atmosphere of splendid and vital youth. Everything vibrated, quivered, shook about me, and I almost felt myself as an aged and decrepit man by comparison. I know my heart gave a great fiery leap as I saw them, for the faces that met me were fine, vigorous, and comely, while burning everywhere through their ripe maturity shone the ardors of youth and a kind of deathless enthusiasm. Old yet eternally young they were, as rivers and mountains count their years by the thousands yet remain ever youthful, and the first effect of all those pairs of eyes lifted to meet my own was to send a whirlwind of unknown thrills about my heart and to make me catch my breath with mingled terror and delight. A fear of death, and at the same time a sensation of touching something vast and eternal that could never die, surged through me. A deep hush followed my entrance as all turned to look at me. They stood, men and women, grouped about a table, and something about them, not their size alone, conveyed the impression of being gigantic, giving me strangely novel realizations of freedom, power, and immense existence more or less than human. I can only record my thoughts and impressions as they came to me and as I now dimly remember them. I had expected to see old Tom Bassett crouching half asleep over a peat fire, a dim lamp on the table beside him, and instead this assembly of tall and splendid men and women stood there to greet me and stood in silence. It was little wonder that at first the ready question died upon my lips, and I almost forgot the words of my own language. I thought this was Tom Bassett's cottage, I managed to ask at length, and looked straight at the man nearest me across the table. He had wild hair falling about his shoulders and a face of clear beauty. His eyes, too, like all the rest, seemed shrouded by something veil-like that reminded me of the shadowy man of whom I had first inquired the way. They were shaded, and for some reason I was glad they were. At the sound of my voice, unreal and thin, there was a general movement through the room, as though everyone changed places, passing each other like those shapes of fluid sort I had seen outside in the mist. But no answer came. It seemed to me that the mist even penetrated into the room about me and spread inwardly over my thoughts. Is this the way to the manor house? I asked again louder, fighting my inward confusion and weakness, can no one tell me? Then apparently everyone began to answer at once, or rather not to answer directly, but to speak to each other in such a way that I could easily overhear. The voices of the men were deep, and of the women wonderfully musical, with a slow rhythm like that of the sea or of the wind through the pine trees outside, but the unsatisfactory nature of what they said only helped to increase my sense of confusion and dismay. Yes, said one, Tom Bassett was here for a while with the sheep, but his home was not here. He asks for a way to a house when he does not even know the way to his own mind, another voice said, sounding overhead, it seemed. And could he recognize the signs if we told him, came in the singing tones of a woman's voice close behind me. And then with a noise more like running water or wind in the wings of birds than anything else I could liken it to, came several voices together. And what sort of way does he seek? 
the splendid way or merely the easy, or the short way of fools. But he must have some credentials or he could never have got as far as this, came from another. A laugh ran round the room at this, though what there was to laugh at I could not imagine. It sounded like the wind rushing about the hills. I got the impression, too, that the roof was somehow open to the sky, for their laughter had such a spacious quality in it, and the air was so cool and fresh and moving about in currents and waves. It was I who showed the way, cried a voice, belonging to someone who was looking straight into my face over the table. It was the safest way for him once he had got so far. I looked up and met his eye, and the sentence remained unfinished. It was the hurrying, shadowy man of the hillside. He had the same shifting outline as the others now, and the same veiled and shaded eyes, and as I looked the sense of terror stirred and grew in me. I had come in to ask for help, but now I was only anxious to be free of them all and out again in the rain and darkness on the moor. Thoughts of escape filled my brain, and I searched quickly for the door through which I had entered, but nowhere could I discover it again. The walls were bare, not even the windows were visible and the room seemed to fill and empty of these figures as the waves of the sea fill and empty a cavern, crowding one upon the other yet never occupying more space or less. So the coming and going of these men and women always evaded me, and my terror became simply a terror that the veils of their eyes might lift, and that they would look at me with their clear naked sight. It was not that I felt them evil, but that I feared the new depths in me that their merciless and terrible insight would stir to life. My consciousness had expanded quite enough for one night. I must escape at all costs and claim my own self again, however limited. I must have sanity, even if with limitations, but sanity at any price. But meanwhile, though I tried hard to find my voice again, there came nothing but a thin piping that was like reeds whistling where winds met about a corner. My throat was contracted, and I could only produce the smallest and most ridiculous of noises. The power of movement, too, was far less than when I first came in, and every moment it became more difficult to use my muscles so that I stood there, stiff and awkward, face to face with this assemblage of shifting wonderful people. And now, continued the voice of the man who had last spoken, and now the safest way for him will be through the other door, where he shall see that which he may more easily understand. With a great effort, I regained the power of movement, while at the same time a burst of anger and a determination to be done with it all and to overcome my dreadful confusion drove me forward. He saw me coming, of course, and the others indeed opened up and made away for me, shifting to one side or the other whenever I came too near them, and never allowing me to touch them. But at last, when I was close in front of the man, both ready to speak and act, he was no longer there. I never saw the actual change, but instead of a man it was a woman— and when I turned with amazement, I saw that the other occupants, walking like figures in some ancient ceremony, were moving slowly toward the far end of the room. One by one, as they filed past, they raised their calm, passionless faces to mine, immensely vital, proud, austere, and then, without further word or gesture, they opened the door that I had lost and disappeared through it one by one into the darkness of the night beyond. And as they went, it seemed that the mist swallowed them up, and a gust of wind caught them away, and the light also went with them, leaving me alone with the figure who had last spoken. Moreover, it was just here that a most disquieting thought flashed through my brain with unreasoning conviction, shaking my personality, as it were, to the foundations, viz., 
that I had hitherto been spending my life in the pursuit of false knowledge, in the mere classifying and labeling of effects, the analysis of results, scientific so-called, whereas it was the folklorist and such like who with their dreams and prayers were all the time on the path of real knowledge, the trail of causes, that the one was merely adding to the mechanical comfort and safety of the body, ultimately degrading the highest part of man and never advancing the type, while the other, but then I had never yet believed in a soul, and now was no time to begin, terror or no terror. Clearly my thoughts were wandering. Chapter 4 It was at this moment that the sound of the purring first reached me, deep, guttural purring that made me think at once of some large concealed animal. It was precisely what I had heard many a time at the zoological gardens, and I had visions of cows chewing the cud or horses munching hay in a stall outside the cottage. It was certainly an animal sound, and one of pleasure and contentment. Semi-darkness filled the room. Only a very faint moonlight struggling through the mist came through the window, and I moved back instinctively toward the support of the wall against my back. Somewhere, through openings, came the sound of the night driving over the roof and far above I had visions of those everlasting winds streaming by with clouds as large as continents on their wings. Something in me wanted to sing and shout, but something else in me at the same time was in a very vivid state of unreasoning terror. I felt immense yet tiny, confident yet timid, a part of huge universal forces yet an utterly small personal and very limited being. In the corner of the room on my right stood the woman, her face was hid by a mass of tumbling hair that made me think of living grasses on a field in June. Thus her head was partly turned from me, and the moonlight, catching her outline, just revealed it against the wall like an impressionist picture. Strange hidden memories stirred in the depths of me, and for a moment I felt that I knew all about her. I stared about me quickly, nervously, trying to take in everything at once. Then the purring sound grew much louder and closer, and I forgot my notion that this woman was no stranger to me, and that I knew her as well as I knew myself. The purring thing was in the room, close beside me. Between us two, indeed, it was, for I now saw that her arm nearest to me was raised and that she was pointing to the wall in front of us. Following the direction of her hand, I saw that the wall was transparent, and that I could see through a portion of it into a small square space beyond as though I was looking through gauze instead of bricks. This small inner space was lighted, and on stooping down I saw that it was a sort of cupboard or cell-like cage let into the wall. The thing that purred was there, in the center of it. I looked closer. It was a being, apparently a human being, crouched down in its narrow cage, feeding. I saw the body stooping over a quantity of coarse-looking, piled-up substance that was evidently food. It was like a man huddled up. There it squatted, happy and contented, with the minimum of air, light, and space, dully satisfied with its prisoned cage behind the bars, utterly unconscious of the vast world about it, grunting with pleasure, purring like a great cat, scornfully ignorant of what might lie beyond. The cell, moreover, I saw was a perfect masterpiece of mechanical contrivance and inventive ingenuity, the very last word in comfort, safety, and scientific skill. I was in the act of trying to fit in my memory some of the details of its construction and arrangement when I made a chance noise, and at once became too agitated to note carefully what I saw. For at the noise the creature turned, and I saw that it was a human being, a man. 
I was aware of a face, close against my own as it pressed forward, but a face with embryonic features impossible to describe and utterly loathsome, with eyes, ears, nose, and skin only just sufficiently alive and developed to transfer the minimum of gross sensation to the brain. The mouth, however, was large and thick-lipped, and the jaws were still moving in the act of slow mastication. I shrank back, shuddering with mingled pity and disgust, and at the same moment the woman beside me called me softly by my own name. She had moved forward a little so that she stood quite close to me, full in the thin stream of moonlight that fell across the floor, and I was conscious of a swift transition from hell to heaven as my gaze passed from that embryonic visage to a countenance so refined, so majestic, so divinely sensitive in its strength that it was like turning from the face of a devil to look upon the features of a goddess. At the same instant I was aware that both beings, the creature and the woman, were moving rapidly toward me. A pain like a sharp sword dived deep down into me and twisted horribly through my heart, for as I saw them coming I realized in one swift movement of terrible intuition that they had their life in me, that they were born of my own being. They were indeed projections of myself. They were portions of my consciousness projected outwardly into objectivity, and their degree of reality was just as great as that of any other part of me. With dreadful swiftness they rushed toward me and in a single second had merged themselves into my own being, and I understood in some marvelous manner beyond the possibility of doubt that they were symbolic of my own soul. The dull animal part of me that had hitherto acknowledged nothing beyond its cage of minute sensations, and the higher part almost out of reach and in touch with the stars that for the first time had feebly awakened into life during my journey over the hill. Chapter 5 I forget altogether how it was that I escaped, whether by the window or the door. I only know that I found myself a moment later making great speed over the moor, followed by screaming birds and shouting winds straight on the track downhill toward the manor house. Something must have guided me, for I went with the instinct of an animal, having no uncertainties as to turnings, and saw the welcome lights of the house before I had covered another mile. And all the way I felt as though a great sluice-gate had been opened to let a flood of new perceptions rush like a sea over my inner being so that I was half ashamed and half delighted, partly angry yet partly happy. Servants met me at the door, several of them, and I was aware at once of an atmosphere of commotion in the house. I arrived breathless and hatless, wet to the skin, my hands scratched and my boots caked with mud. We made sure you were lost, sir, I heard the old butler say, and I heard my own reply faintly like the voice of someone else. I thought so too. A minute later I found myself in the study with the old folklorist standing opposite. In his hands he held the book I had brought for him in my bag, ready addressed. There was a curious smile on his face. It never occurred to me that you would dare to walk, tonight of all nights, he was saying. I stared without a word. I was bursting with the desire to tell him something of what had happened and to try to be patient with his explanations. But when I sought for words and sentences, my story seemed flat and pointless, and the details of my adventure began to evaporate and melt away and seemed hard to remember. I had an exciting walk, I stammered, still a little breathless from running. The weather was all right when I started from the station. The weather is all right still, he said, though you may have found some evening mist on top of the hills, but that's not what I meant. What then? I meant... 
he said, still laughing quizzically, that you were a brave man to walk tonight over the enchanted hills. Because this is May Day Eve, and on May Day Eve, you know, they have power over the minds of men, and can put glamour upon the imagination. Who? They? What do you mean? He put my book down on the table beside him and looked quietly for a moment into my eyes, and as he did so the memory of my adventure began to revive in detail, and I thought quickly of the shadowy man who had shown me the way first. What could it have been in the face of the old folklorist that made me think of this man? A dozen things ran like flashes through my excited mind, and while I attempted to seize them I heard the old man's voice continue. He seemed to be talking to himself as much as me. The elemental beings you have always scoffed at, of course. They who operate ceaselessly behind the screen of appearances and who fashion and mold the moods of the mind. And an extremist like you, for extremes are always dangerously weak, is their legitimate prey. Shaw, I interrupted him, knowing that my manner betrayed me hopelessly and that he had guessed much. Any man may have subjective experiences, I suppose. Then I broke off suddenly. A change in his face made me start. It had taken on for a moment so exactly the look of the man on the hillside. The eyes gazing so steadily into mine had shadows in them, I thought. Glamour, he was saying. Oh, glamour. One of them must have come very close to you, or perhaps touched you. Then he added sharply, Did you meet anyone? Did you speak with anyone? I came by Tom Bassett's cottage, I said. I didn't feel quite sure of the way, so I went in and asked. Oh, glamour, he repeated to himself, and then aloud to me. And as for Bassett's cottage, it was burnt down three years ago, and nothing stands there now but broken roofless walls. He stopped short because I had seized him by the arm. In the shadows of the lamplit room behind him, I thought I caught sight of dim forms moving past the bookshelves. But when my eye tried to focus them, they faded and slipped away again into ceiling and walls. The details of the hilltop cottage, however, started into life again at the sight, and I seized my friend's arm to tell him. But instantly when I tried, it all faded away again, as though it had been a dream, and I could recall nothing intelligible to repeat to him. He looked at me and laughed. They always obliterate the memory afterwards, he said gently so that little remains beyond a mood or an emotion to show how profoundly deep their touch has been, though sometimes part of their change remains and becomes permanent, as I hope in your case it may. Then, before I had time to answer or to swear or to remonstrate, he stepped briskly past me and closed the door into the hall and then drew me further into the room. The change that I could not understand was still working in his face and eyes. If you have courage enough left to come with me, he said, speaking very seriously. We will go out again and see more. Up until midnight, you know, there is still the opportunity, and with me perhaps you won't feel so... so... It was impossible somehow to refuse. Everything combined to make us go. We had a little food and then went out into the hall, and he clapped a wide awake on his gray hairs. I took a cloak and seized a walking stick from the stand. I hardly knew what I was doing. The new world I had awakened to seemed to quiver about me. As we passed out onto the gravel drive, the light from the hall windows fell upon his face, and I saw that the change I had been so long observing was nearing its completeness, for there breathed about him that keen, wonderful atmosphere of eternal youth that I had felt upon the inmates of the cottage. He seemed to have gone back forty years, 
A veil was gathering over his eyes, and I could have sworn that somehow his stature had increased and that he moved beside me with a vigor and power I had never seen in him before. And as we began to climb the hill together in silence, I saw that the stars were clear overhead, and there was no mist, and the trees stood motionless without wind, and that beyond us on the summit of the hills there were lights dancing to and fro, appearing and disappearing, like inflections of stars in water.